Amen. Well, good morning again, and I want to welcome you, if those of you that are just joining us via online or have come in here late as we were singing, we want to welcome you this morning as I'm finishing up a series during the month of August that I have been preaching on the issue of the crisis in the American church. We have crisis, folks, that's been going on, and today's message I want to share with you revolves around the issue that we have all faced recently, and maybe some of us have faced it in darker times that we don't speak about, but we have all faced it in our life when it comes to the issue of our relationship with God, and that is the crisis of isolation. So if you have your Bible, you can find your way to Genesis chapter 3, verses 24. We're going to camp out there for a few moments as I share the scriptures and what God has spoken to man and woman and to this serpent in the Garden of Eden. But as you're finding your place there, I want to introduce our message by sharing with you some statistics. Now, what is crisis? We have defined crisis On the screen, you see it's a decisive moment, a turning point, something that has gone on in our life that could be some most significant, emotionally significant, could be a catastrophe, but also could be a good thing. I once heard a man describe a wedding yesterday as the ultimate funeral. He said, you have to truly give death to your single life in order to enjoy the transition of married life. I thought about that for a moment. I said, many men are defining that as crisis at this moment. All right, the crisis that goes on in our life as we transition from learning how to, to be married, how to deal with new circumstances, the crisis of a newborn child in the house keeping us up all night long, and the loss of sleep. But a lot of things cause us crisis. A synonym that you see up there is a juncture in a season of life. Isn't it wonderful that God shows his general revelation to us through the seasons of change? Many of us have been enjoying this cooler weather as we're sitting on the front porch drinking our cup of coffee and being thankful that the the little skeeter bugs are leaving us alone and it's getting cooler. Uh, We love the change of seasons. It reminds us of our own life and how there are often changes in the seasons of our life, different junctures that we go through that God uses to share with us. Well, I want to share with you this issue of isolation Many of you probably don't need the definition of isolation, but what isolation is, is an individual or a population, a strain or culture obtained by resulting from a selection or a separation from something, socially withdrawn or removed from society. Well, I would argue that we have this crisis outside the church as well as inside the church, and I want to explain that to you today through the scriptures. If you'll take a look at this image, this image is of MetLife Stadium. You'll notice there are all kinds of different crises, but this stadium specifically can hold about 81,000 people. Now, why do I share that with you, this picture and this image? I want you to get your head visually wrapped around what 81,000 people would look like today. And the crisis of isolation is hitting us so difficult in our American culture that it's estimated that we have nearly 81,000 to 82,000 people that are currently in solitary confinement in prison. Let me show you a picture of what solitary confinement would look like in terms of isolation. Generally, an 8 by 10 cell where a person is removed from the general population and they're in this prison cell where maybe one hour a day they get access to daylight. It's interesting that this issue affects nearly 81,000 prisoners today. Now, the science behind this is researchers are getting smart about the effects of solitary confinement. Now, many go into solitary confinement trying to be protected from the general population, Or maybe they're so unruly that they think that if they put them in a solitary confinement, it will cure their behavior. Some prisoners spend their entire life in solitary confinement. But it's interesting that the psychologists are finding out that the very thing that solitary confinement is meant to stop from happening is causing more of the problems. There are those that scientists will say a majority of those surveys 
surveyed from being in solitary confinement experienced symptoms such as dizziness, heart palpitations, chronic depression. 41% reported hallucinations. 27% had suicidal thoughts. Levels highly significant more than those in the overall prison population. Unhealthy studies published in August of 2019 found that isolated inmates, inmates are seven times more likely to hurt themselves or kill themselves than inmates at, at large. The science is showing us that isolation causes some tremendous damage to the human psyche in our mind and in our souls that makes us tick. Now, how does that relate to you and I? I would argue from the beginning of creation, we see the ultimate separation and isolation of humanity from our creator God. And from that very beginning of isolation where we were cast out of his presence, a lot of our issues of anxiety, of depression, of want, of need, of anger, of fear, all of those things have crept into our society today. Number one, because we're isolated from God, but we're also isolated from others. And unfortunately, we isolate others from God, even amongst the church. So the basis of this message today, I'm going to share with you a few things in, in way of reading in the text. So let's go to Genesis chapter 24. And I want us to focus on this issue of isolation, and we will see the very beginning of it in the Scriptures. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. If you're there, say amen. amen. Picking up in the Scriptures, the Bible tells us the following. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden in Eden, and he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, Father, we come to you now. We pray that you would guide our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to focus on you. Father, we pray for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that dwells within each side of every believer. And Father, we pray for those that are not believers in Christ, that the conviction and the drawing of them to you would be in such a way that they can't refuse you any longer. But Father, we pray that you use this message to help us end the isolation that we often experience in the church and outside of the church. Father, we have, pray that you'd have your will in all that is said and done in this service. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me share with you the beginning in way of, of overview of what we're going to look at today in this message. And it's just going to be three points in a poem, and I'll be done. I'll be a Baptist preacher today, amen? Three points in a poem. The cause of isolation, number one, we'll examine. The compounding effect of what isolation does to us. And how do we see this as the church? And lastly, the Christ-centered cure for isolation. And I'm going to share all three of them with you in a fairly short, succinct way. So if you get out early for lunch today, uh, just invite me to go with you, and it'll all be good, right? Uh, but amen. So if you're there with your Bible, I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 for a minute. And three things that we need to experience as we, we look at this and identify what's happening in the text. First, there's a root cause of almost everything. There's a root cause of even isolation. Now, what is the root of isolation? The root of isolation is, number one, deception. Deception. If you go back a few verses to verse thir thir chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, what we will see in the text is the very issue of what came on the scene that caused woman and Adam to be deceived by the great serpent, and because of that deception, where isolation began in their life. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now what we have here in verse 13, 14, what we have is, is the very curse of God against Satan because of this deception in which woman was deceived by the serpent. Now if any of you know the story, 
If you read back a little bit earlier, you will see that woman and Adam are doing what God created them for. They're in the Garden of Eden. They've named all the beasts of the field and the air, and they're fulfilling the responsibilities that God had given them to subdue subdue the earth, to rule over it, to have dominion over all of those things. And they've set out on a path to do those things. And while Adam was doing that alone, he realized he didn't have a helpmate, and God knew it wouldn't be good for him to have no helpmate. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and out of his rib, he took him and he created woman. And when Adam woke up from his anesthesia that God induced, Adam looked at woman and said, wow, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. I shall call her woe man, woman, right? And so we have the, the union of man and woman there in the garden of Eden in perfect harmony together. They were doing the things that were called. And then all of a sudden the deceiver slithered his way in. And on this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here he is in the story and the images that we've seen painted through the historians of years past. We've got Adam, woman, and the serpent in this tree. And now deception creeps in, causing the root of isolation. Now, if you think back in our own lives, when we talk, when clinical psychologists counsel with people that are battling depression, that are battling issues of isolation, that are always feeling alone and other things, they often get to the root. They try to find the root cause of your depression? What is the root cause of your isolation? Now, sometimes it's a chemical imbalance. Sometimes it's things that need to be addressed through medication. Much like Adam was put to sleep through anesthesia, God's given doctors wisdom to prescribe certain things to help the human body in its fallen state. But often we want to identify the root cause. And you know, most of the time in our own life, the root cause of what is causing our isolation and feelings is deception. We think that nobody loves us. We think that we can't be good enough. We think we can never satisfy our wife or our husband, and in reality, they're quite happy with the way we are. We think we can't do good enough in school. We think we'll never make it on the sports field. We think that if I don't kick the field goal properly, my dad's not going to love me. All of those things that often are used in our own life to deceive us from experiencing love. Isn't it interesting? It's the very thing that the serpent did to, to Eve in the garden. She's known as woman at that point. And Satan deceives her thinking, that she needs something other than what God has already done for her to experience his love. How often that's the case for us in the church, too. We think we're not good enough. We didn't study our Bible enough. We don't know enough scripture. We can't memorize like others can. We can't recount from Genesis to maps all that went on in in the history of the Bible. We don't know it, so I can't possibly be used by God. Folks, deception creeps into our own life, too, and causes us to go and not experience the full love that God has for you and I. When we allow ourselves to be deceived and isolation creeps in and we stay away from the body of Christ, we stop attending our Bible studies, we stop going to those things that we know are healthy for us, we stop listening to the Word of God and we start listening to outside voices. Can't that be destructive? You ever had that in-law that every time you went to their home all they did was run you down or run your spouse down? And you know that every time you left there you were just in a state of of turmoil when you went home eventually you just had to stop going there because it was just bringing you down those outside voices trying to speak into your life that are contrary to what god's word is folks i'd i'd encourage you that the root of our isolation often in our life is deception that satan is trying to bring into our life but there's also not only a root of isolation there's a result of isolation look at verses 16 through 19 with me for just a moment In Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, what we have here is a curse that God is going to place upon woman and upon Adam during this time frame. 
And here, instead of everything being perfect, instead of everything being just being tended to by Adam and woman, now instead, the conditions of life are going to change dramatically for Adam and woman in the garden. They're going to introduce and be introduced to this curse that is absolutely going to rock their foundations of what they knew life to be. Look in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. I will greatly, is what he's saying, in childbearing, in the conception of children. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Folks, our tragedy that we have today in the feminist movement that is going on where women's equality, I'm all for equal rights. God created us equally different for his purpose to be fulfilled. But one of the struggles that we see today with the feminist movement, and I'm just going to share it with you right here, can be brought back to this very text of Scripture. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Boy, we don't like that, do we? Don't like it a bit, but that's part of the curse. That's the fall of mankind, and here it is in Scripture. We see God pronouncing that upon woman. But he doesn't stop there. He goes to verse 17, and he looks at the man now. By the way, it wasn't the woman that God confronted about the fall and the deception immediately. It was Adam. Adam, where are you? You see, up to that point, they had experienced close fellowship where God walked in the garden with Adam and a woman. He, he had an intimate relationship with God. He recognized God's footsteps. He knew when God was around, and he wasn't afraid of it because he was in communion with God. Everything was right and perfect and harmony. But now, as God called out to, to Adam, Where are you? Adam responds, For I ran and hid because I knew I was naked. And God, like the good parent and creator that he is, looked at him with that rhetorical question, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I told you? For if you do, surely you will die. God already knew the answer to that question. You ever do that with your children? You already know they ate all the cookies. Then they try to blame it on dad. It wasn't me, it was her, right? That happens. God knew in his omnipotence. But God confronts the man first and foremost. And then the curse follows in verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, gentlemen, don't use this as an excuse not to listen. Amen? That's not what it's saying. This doesn't give you the right to just scoff it off and say, no, you were deceived once, woman. You may be again. I wouldn't apply that, okay? By the way, I do marital counseling Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you need any assistance there, just give me a call. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it, bring, it, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. See, I believe God just eating might have been in North Carolina, I'm not sure. But all it takes is for me to walk outside and boom, I'm covered in the sweat of my brow. Amen? By the sweat of your brow, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, the result of isolation is our desire to want more. See, now Adam and woman are in this state, in this condition, where they are going to begin constantly, constantly never having enough constantly, constantly seeking more than what they have. Now they've got to work for it and hope that it will produce more, hope that it will provide the things they need to survive. Isn't that an image of our life today? We are constantly having to strive for more and more and more and more. 
And you ever have something that you really wanted, then you get a hold of it, and then you realize after you've had it, something else takes its place? Doesn't matter what it may be. When I was growing up, when I was a young man, you know, I wanted that big four-wheel drive truck and the nice tires and all those things young men like. And then when I get that, that's not enough. I, w- I want my house, and I want it to be a certain way. And then when you get the house a certain way, then it's, it's some other toy or some other thing. You see, we're in this constant progression of never, never, never enough. We can never be satisfied with the things of the world and the things of the flesh. But folks, you know where we can be satisfied? With Jesus. We can be satisfied knowing that we are no longer in the same state that Adam and Eve are in here that the Bible is telling us about where the cherubim guarded the Garden of Eden in verse 24 and cast Adam and woman out of God's presence to never return to that place. We can find true contentment. What is the rescue from isolation? I want you to go to verse 15 for a minute. I skipped it on, on purpose. Go back to verse 15, and I want to show you the rescue from isolation where Christ is revealed. We call it the proto-evangelium. The very first time that the gospel is seen in the text of scriptures, we can find it in chapter 15, excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 15 of the book of Genesis. Isn't that wonderful? Look with me, if you will, in verse 15 for a second. And I will put enmity, that's hostility, that's what that means here. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, who's God talking to? He's speaking to the serpent. See, the first curse wasn't to man and woman. It was to the serpent in verse 15. Then it goes to woman. Then it goes to man. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel or crush, depending on your translation. You see, God is already foreshadowing what he is going to do in the person of Jesus Christ who was in the beginning, was before time, was before you and I were even thought of, before the world's foundations were even established, Christ was there. We can go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we can look at the plural word of in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And the word God there is Yahweh Elohim. It's plural in the Hebrew language. It means more than one. Then we can go to chapter 1 and verse 26, and we can see God says in the plural, let us create man in our image and in our likeness. He created them male and female. You see, there's no doubt in our world, while we have the privilege of looking back and reflecting a Trinitarian view into the Scripture, what we know, though, is that God in His omnipotence, His omniscience, in His all-powerful being, knew Jesus was there from the very beginning, and now He sets forth this precursor of letting the serpent know that this same Jesus is going to crush your head. Isn't that beautiful? What's the rescue for this isolation that Adam and Eve have from the Garden of Eden? It's the same rescue that you and I have the privilege of knowing that Jesus Christ paid it all. All to him I owe. My sins, although as red as crimson, have been washed white as snow. I told you I'd throw a poem in there, right? You know I'm a Baptist preacher, amen? So we see here the key point that Christ rescues us. Now where was Jesus? Check this out for a minute. In the midst of the cursing... Y'all catch this? In the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of knowing they did wrong and ran and hid from God, in the midst of being cast out of God's presence, there was Jesus just waiting, waiting to save them. You can read in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23, and a little bit forward, just before that in 23, we see that what will God do to provide for Adam and woman? He will cast them out of his presence, but before he does that, the Bible tells us that he's slain an innocent animal 
Folks, up until that point, there had not been death. Death was not known. Death was not a thing that had ever occurred in the Garden of Eden before. And here we see in Genesis 3.23 that God slain or slew an animal, and he covered the nakedness. Nakedness is the revelation of the sin now that is upon Adam and woman, Adam and Eve. And he covered that nakedness with the skins of an animal, and he shed the innocent blood so that that sin could be covered right now. But in the future, we know, as John would say in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Folks, our relationship, how we've solved the isolation between us and God Almighty is the fact that the Bible tells us that in Christ Jesus, we are clothed in His righteousness. That animal skin that covered Adam and woman, we are now clothed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? What a beautiful revelation for us to understand how it all comes together so we can truly understand that we have the ability to end the isolation of us being away from God because of sin and iniquity, that when we repent of our sin and we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, He closes us and allows us to once again, when God says, Virgil, where are you? I don't have to run and hide anymore because He and I are in fellowship together. He is my Father, and I can call out, Abba, Father, who loves me in heaven. Because I've been adopted as a child of God, I no longer have to be fearful of my heavenly Father. You may run from your daddy when he raises his hands, but you don't have to run from our Lord and Savior if you're in the hands of Jesus. Because he holds you, he uplifts you, he girds you. The cause of isolation is clear, but let me share with you the second point of our message that I think resonates with the church today is the compounding effect of isolationism or the compounding effect of being isolated from others. Now hold on to your hat for a minute. I know you'll be surprised by this, but I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and find your place in verse 9, and I'll give you a second to get there. Now what I have seen and what I have experienced in the church often in my early Christian life, we have things that we call stages of discipleship that we go through, phases of discipleship where we're a brand new babe in Christ. How many of y'all remember that sweet time in your life when you were brand new in Jesus? I remember telling my wife one time I had just accepted Jesus and we were baptized. I was so bubbly with the gospel. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody could stand being around me at that point, right? I'd be the guy who goes up to the subway counter, ask for a tuna fish sandwich, and then start telling people, hey, do you know I, my heavenly father can feed thousands with that fish? Right? That's the kind of bubbly that we are. We just look for whatever way we can to start sharing the gospel. I remember being at the Cracker Barrel and a lady was praying at the table next to me. And I was so excited to see the other Christians. I wanted to tell my wife, I told my wife, I don't want to go tell her thank you for praying because I was just so excited. I was seeing things that I hadn't seen before. My eyes were open. It was almost like I was a brand new creation. Not almost like I was. And I was beginning to see the world in a different view. And then I started seeing the ugliness in the world. First, my own sin, my own issues that God was dealing with and taking from me one at a time. Some not as quickly as they needed to go because I was still trying to hold on to it. But then I started sheltering myself away from other people. I started getting rid of those folks in my life that were a negative influence, that were walking in the old way that I no longer walked anymore. And before I knew it, I had quickly surrounded myself by nothing but church folks. And for years that went on where I didn't want to associate with anybody but church people. I was still learning. I was weak. I was fragile. I was a babe in Christ. 
And that's not a bad place to be if you're a babe in Christ, by being surrounded by the nourishment. That's why our mothers and our fathers, when the brand new child is born, they keep them at home and they don't bring them out into the population so they don't get infected by all the diseases yet until their immune system is strong. We all get that, don't we? The same thing happens in our spiritual life. But folks, there has to be a transition where that young child begins to stand up against the infections of the world, where that Christian begins to speak life into the darkness, bring light into where the darkness is. And what happens, I have found often, and George Barna, who does a tremendous amount of researching for Christian organizations, he says this, within five years, most Christians no longer have any unsaved friends. Within five years, the church has surrounded themselves by people just like them, and they are no longer taking the salt and the light to the world. I think one of the major reasons is because of fear that we may fall back into our old way of habits. Folks, if you are secured by the grip of Jesus, nothing can pull you out of his hands. You can write in your notes Romans 8, 38, and 39 if you want to go back and read those scriptures. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So why are we fearful of it? Let me share with you what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Number one, there's three things that Christians cannot do in isolation. And this affects us this day and where we live. Number one, the first thing we cannot do is we cannot fulfill the Great Commission in isolation away from the sinner. Now hold right there for a minute. Go to 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Let's pick up and let me read those four verses for you real quick. And I'll give you some context of what's going on. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13, right? We know that the Corinthian church was a role model for a lot of things we don't want to do in church, okay? But nonetheless, they were our brothers and sisters in Christ. They were learning. They were being developed. Thankfully, they had a godly man like Paul who saw the wrong that was going on and took the hard stand to say, no, brothers and sisters, this is not how we do things. This is not from God. Let me share with you what's from God. And he began to correct the behaviors of the first century church through these letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and his other epistles that he wrote. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Everybody say amen. Amen. Amen, brother. I got asked this the other day. I said, well, pastor, what are you going to do if two men come into your church holding hands and they sit down on your pew? I scratched my head. well... I'm going to preach Jesus. Well, what if, they, what if they sit real close to each other and it makes people uncomfortable? What are you going to do? I'm going to preach Jesus. You see, it's easy to isolate a particular sin that we want to pick out and choose and say, that's the sin of all sins. Mm-mm, shame on them. But check out what Paul says here. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now look at verse 10 for a minute. If you need water, you need oxygen, something, when you read this and it just knocks you out, we got an AFib machine in the back, right? But bear with me. Bear with me. Look at verse 10. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, y'all catch that part? Or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I believe the Apostle Paul thought up space travel before John F. Kennedy ever even thought about it. He's telling us right here in the first century church. Space travel. Paul's already saying, in order to not deal with those kind of people, you'll have to leave the world. I'm not talking about the world that's lost. Here's a question, church. Why do we expect the lost to act like the saved if they don't have Jesus? 
Often what we expect is, you need to act like me. I ain't got Jesus either, and I act like I'm right. Oh. You see, we shouldn't be surprised when the behavior of those who are not in Christ is different from the behavior that we see the Bible teach us. Why do we get surprised about that? I'd argue because we need to grow in our discipleship. And we begin to understand that men and women that are not in Christ... Why get upset with them for what they're doing? They're carnal, they're pagan, they're living lost. What did John 3, 17 say? For I didn't come to condemn the world, for the world's already condemned. I came so the world may be saved. Isn't that interesting? Boy, how much stress that relieves off you and I when we realize that Paul's not telling us that we're to be the judges of those outside the church. Matter of fact, he'll address this in the very last verse in verse 13. Let's read on a little bit further. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or swindler. Not even eat with such a one. Don't you judge me, preacher, right? I mean, that's what we hear, isn't it? That's the response we have out of the body of Christ often when we point out a sin that's in the life of the congregation. I believe the Corinthians' response to Paul in this letter would be, don't you judge me, Paul, who are you? But Paul's saying, hey, wait a minute. We don't judge those outside the church. They're not in Christ. They're not following the same rule book that you and I are following. The, the book of relationship that we have with Jesus. You see, there's a whole different set of standards for those that are in Christ to live our life righteous and holy and set apart because he is holy, holy, holy. But folks, if we don't have that revelation, if that person doesn't have that revelation, why do we expect things different out of the church? But yet we treat them different. We make them feel unwelcomed. Folks, they don't know Jesus yet. How are they going to get to be salt and light if we don't allow them to see the light through us? We have to deal with that properly. But what Paul is saying here clearly is if you say you are a brother or a sister in Christ, he says that if you're going contrary to the words of Scripture and you're claiming and professing the name of Jesus, Paul says don't even eat with that person. That's deep, ain't it? Folks, there's a, there's a place for discipline in the church, and Paul is being very clear here. We are ambassadors for Christ. You and I are witnesses for Jesus. What you and I do and the way we conduct ourselves is a testimony of God's heavenly kingdom here on this earth. And when we assemble together as the body of Christ, there is no room for those of us together to be living in outright sin, open sin and rebellion against the God that we say has saved us. Folks, what kind of place would that be? Look in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Did y'all catch that part? Paul's saying, hey, focus on the main things here. Don't worry about the riots in the streets and all that craziness that's going on. They're not in the church. And if they are and they claim to be amongst the church, don't eat with them. Don't socialize with them. They're not part of this church, amen? Second part of verse 12. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? How many of y'all have never read that verse before? Right? That's what he's saying here. Folks, we've got we've to police our own. We've got to understand what the Scriptures are saying, and then we've got to live that and model that in our corporate lifestyle, and it resonates into our individual lifestyle. 
What we allow to happen corporately are, are the residual effects that will take place in our life privately. I have sold out and I believe that wholeheartedly. What we do corporately as a church will ripple down to what you do individually in your life. Why are we so bent on discipleship? Why are we investing in small groups? Why do we want deacons and teachers serving and doing ministry as a small group? Because what we do corporately will begin to be modeled in your life as an individual Christian. But if we don't ever do it here, I would argue you would be right in saying, well, pastor, I've never seen it right. Well, you're right. Come here. We'll show you it right. We'll show you it anchored in the scriptures, the best we know to be. And when we are wrong and we've got it wrong, we'll repent and we'll get on the right train together. Amen? But we're going to work it the way the scriptures tell us to do it. Verse 13, God judges those outside. Look what Paul says here. This is deep now. And you all think it's too harsh when we confront sin that's in the church. When I know of a man and a woman living together out of marriage, but yet they want to join the church. When I know of a man who's having a particular addiction issue, but yet refuses to seek treatment, but yet he's amongst the church. When I know of a woman who is outside the will of God, who's doing things that are contrary to God's will and doesn't want to repent. Now notice there's a key difference there. Did y'all catch the end of my statement? You see, we can struggle with sin and it can have a stronghold on us. And yes, Jesus can break the chains of that stronghold. But we got to be willing to repent and work through the process to get healthy together. There are some things that are very difficult. Some addictions need medical treatment, amen? Some problems that we have psychologically with addictions need medical intervention to help us overcome some of those things. But the heart is that the individual that calls themselves a Christian is wanting to get well. What did Jesus say to the man at the pool of Bethsaida who'd been laying there, laying 38 years, John chapter 4? Do you want to be well? And pick up your mat and walk. What did the man do, though, before the pick up your mat part? He began to give all the excuses as to why he couldn't get into the water to be healed. But, 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 but. You see, when we confront the issue, as Paul is telling us here, of open sin in the church, when we confront that brother, if there's a spirit of repentance and a true spirit of contrition where the sin is grieving not only our heart as a church but the individual's heart, then we, we insulate, we don't isolate that person. We wrap ourselves around him or her and we help bring the healing that Jesus is using you and I to bring to them. Three things we can't do in isolation as a church. Number one, we cannot fill the Great Commission in isolation from sinners. I mean, that's kind of a profound statement, isn't it? As simple as it is. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission if we're not willing to go amongst those who need it. Meaning we've got to have conversations with sinners. I had a young man, he's actually a family member of mine. If y'all watch my Facebook post, sometimes, hey, I'm not responsible for what people post, amen? What I post, I, I own that. What others post, y'all use it as a witness, amen? I got, I got some non-saved people in my life. It's okay, because I'm sharing the gospel with them. And this gentleman posted something on Facebook about a stolen trailer that was done, and yada, yada, and, and his language was colorful. He used a bunch of expletives, uh, expletives that I, I, I don't talk that way anymore. But folks, we've got to have sinners in our life if we're going to be the light and the salt. We've got to have people that need to know what you and I now know if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission. If we're so afraid or if we're so immature in our walk that we're not ready to stand on our own two legs spiritually grounded in Jesus because we don't think we can overcome that temptation 
then maybe you shouldn't go in that area. Maybe you need a little stronger dose of discipleship amongst your small group in your personal life with God. But folks, in order to fulfill the Great Commission, we have got to be a force that goes out amongst the sinner, not isolated amongst the saints. That's the bottom line. We've got to get comfortable. I'm not saying condoning the sin. Please hear my heart. I'm not saying condone it, but recognize where it's coming from. Why do we get so wrapped up around folks that are lost that we know they don't know Jesus? And man, their sin's wrecking our world. Why? We, ha- we, we should understand where it's coming from. And if anything, that should compel us even more to want to share the gospel with them. Because folks, I don't know about y'all, but I tried to get myself right before I came to Jesus. I tried to clean up my language before I came to Jesus. I tried to clean up my thought life before I came to Jesus. I tried to be a good man by the world standards before I came to Jesus. And I failed at every single attempt. It was Jesus that made me who I am today. It wasn't my own doing. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Folks, we've got to be about the sinner if we're going to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus said, I didn't come for the, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Amen. Number two, though, we cannot fulfill the great commandment in isolation from our neighbor. Ooh, that's deep, ain't it? Sometimes we don't like our neighbor. Sometimes we don't like what's going on. Jesus didn't tell me to like my neighbor. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Folks, we can't fulfill the great commission in isolation from sinners. We can't fulfill the great commandment in isolation from our neighbors. And we cannot fulfill our purpose in Christ in isolation from one another. That's the third point. It'll come up here in a moment. We cannot fulfill our purpose in Christ in isolation from one another. Folks, when we fail to begin assembling together, when we don't meet together, when we don't invest in discipleship, now I got corona. All y'all listen to me at home that aren't able to come because of corona, the COVID-19. Set that aside for a minute. I'm not talking about COVID situation issues. You know who you are that lays out a church, but yet you're shopping at Walmart seven days a week. You're going out to every restaurant without a face mask on. You're hanging out at the park. You're doing all the normal activities of life. And the only thing you haven't done is resume coming to church. Okay, that's who I'm talking to right now. You can't fulfill the purpose that God has for you in your life apart from the body of Christ. It can't happen. Biblically can't happen. You come up with a good argument for why it can biblically and come sit. I'll buy you lunch and we'll talk about it. Right? Because it cannot happen. To fulfill our purpose in Christ, we cannot do it in isolation from one another. We have to have that koinonia factor, the fellowship of the body of Christ. We have to be together. The compounding effect of isolation is horrible. And I would argue one of the greatest reasons we don't have even more reach is because we are afraid of the sinner. We're afraid of the unrighteousness. We don't know how to handle it. We don't know how to deal with it. Folks, instead of isolating ourselves away from the world... We need to insulate the world with the gospel. We need to go to the broken, to the sick, the hungry. Not just hungry for physical manna, but hungry for the word of God, the very bread of life. And we need to share that with them. But moving on, I want to share with you lastly our third point of our message. The third point of our message is this. 
the issue of, of what is going on in our life and why we can say that the Christ-centered cure for isolation comes to us that you and I know. The statistics tell us this on suicide. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. In 2018, 48,344 Americans died by suicide. I was alarmed as I was studying suicide statistics yesterday how many children in the ages of 10 to 14 in our nation commit suicide. Right now, the suicide population kills more people by suicide from 20 to 28-year-olds than homicide by 20 to 28-year-olds. 2.4 to 1.3. More people are dying today by, by suicide amongst that age group than by homicide, meaning murders that are taking place. Why? Isolation issues. 2.4 million suicide attempts in America alone last year. So what is the cure for what's happening? This isolation that people feel we're at the end of our rope. What do we do? Where do I turn? Every 22, every day, 22 service members and women, soldiers, airmen, sailors, Marines, Coast Guard, 22 a day kill themselves by suicide, not knowing how to deal with the stresses that they've, they've encountered during combat situations or because of their military service. 22 a day commit suicide. I think in the last six months, I've had six or seven suicide posts come across my Facebook from men that I've either known or men I've worked with that know a teammate that killed themselves because they finally said, I don't know how to handle this issue. I'm so isolated from the world. I don't feel like I fit in. I don't belong. I'm just going to end it all. Folks, the cure is not suicide. The cure is Jesus. And let me share with you how Jesus is the cure, a couple of ways. And I'm going to give you some, some stories of great despair from godly men in the Scriptures and what they were on the verge of dying themselves. They felt like dying, but God rescued them from that deliverance. So let me give you Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30 as a text to write down for a moment. And let me share with you what it says. Jesus says, Come to me, all ye who are laden and labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in that scripture we see a few things, and I'll just share them with you quickly. There's a heavy burden. They're loaded down with the, the issues of the world. They need rest. Jesus says, if you affix yourself to me, you'll find rest. So let me give you three biblical examples of what went on in the Old Testament for despair and how it comes. You'll notice the caption, despair comes in many shapes and sizes. This is not intended to be a one-size-fits-all, but I want to share with you the heart of some godly men and how profound their own despair had come in their life. David, being pursued by King Saul. Now, David would be the one anointed by Samuel to lead and become the new king of Israel because Saul was going wayward away from God, and, and Saul was chasing David and was going to kill David. David didn't understand this. How, how could this be? Jonathan, you know, his son, were like brothers. I, I love Jonathan with all my heart. What is going on? How could Saul be this way with me? Man, let me share with you how David describes his anguish, his anguish and his vexation at this time frame. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3, But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks... Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. So David and Jonathan are having this conversation. David is running away from Saul. He's having a conversation with Saul's son, Jonathan. And David's telling Jonathan, don't let your father know what's going on. But here's what David says. But truly as the Lord lives and your soul lives, 
There is but a step between me and death. David understood what was going on, and it vexed him. He was in absolute anguish, and he recognized, I'm I'm a step away from death. I mean, that's the point where my life has come to, and I recognize it. I mean, the despair that King David was in and experienced, but yet he put his trust and faith in the Lord. The Apostle Paul in our New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, as he's writing this second letter to the church in Corinth, he talks to them a little bit about his own anguish and his own trials and his own struggles that he had in his life. And he says this, picking up in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Basically, Paul said, I just as soon die than have to deal with this anymore. Now, we know he goes on to say to, to live is the gain, to die is gain, to, to be in Christ. What shall I do? Choose living or being with Christ? Either one's great. But here he's telling the Corinthian church just the point, the low point that his life got to, even in serving God because of the affliction that others placed upon him. And all the wisdom that Paul knew, yet he still hit this low point in his life. And he would later go on to write, For in your weakness I am strong. God was telling him that. Jesus was telling Paul that. For in your weakness I am strong. I can deliver you from those things. He goes on to say in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. You can keep reading through verse 11. What a beautiful understanding. He was despaired. When you look at despaired, it means to lose one's emotional or mental composure. He lost his mind. He was at that point in his own walk. This is post-Jesus, by the way. But yet he held on to the truth and the promises of God even in Christ. Folks, the person that tells you that you just come to Jesus and everything's going to be fine, you better run away from that person because they're lying to you. Now you come to Jesus and your eternity will be fine. Its rewards will be out of this world. But in this life, you will be persecuted. As they persecuted me and the prophets, they will persecute you. We can guarantee that. There's a testimony for you waiting on the other side of accepting Jesus and his persecution. It's going to come for all of us in all kinds of different shapes and forms. We don't have the time to talk about all those things. But secondly, let me share with you, not only despair comes in many shapes and sizes. We see David, we see Paul, two mighty men for God, but yet despair to the point of being ready to die. But there's also a deliverance that comes. I love what he writes in chapter 4. Paul the apostle writes this, The deliverance from isolation has come. Listen to the strength of these words now. Having understood his story before, now you can appreciate where he stands now knowing the promises of truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 14. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despaired. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Folks, if that isn't a testimony to the other side of isolation and despair that is found in Christ Jesus, I don't know what is. What a powerful word that Paul is speaking. Understanding it. Lastly, let me share with you the third point. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I mean, it's a promise in scripture. Now there's the second part of that verse if you really want to know what it says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. But the first part of it I like, right? Sounds good. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I heard Brother David Jeremiah this morning. He quoted something I've heard before in the past, but he said this. He says, each and every one of us have the ability to have all of God that we want. Think about that. Now he said this. He said, it'll stick in your throat like a fish bone. We all have the ability to have all of God that we want to have. It's a deep statement, isn't it? How bad do you want it? How bad do you want him? He'll come right to your rescue. He'll come right to you, right where you are. He will meet you in life. All ye who are heavy laden and burdened, come to me, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, when we come to Christ, Christ Jesus, we can truly end the isolation from God and be restored in the way God created us where we no longer run. Christ offers an end to our isolation from God and our isolation from one another in his perfect creation. So let me close with this, this illustration point to kind of anchor our message home. I opened up with an illustration of MetLife Stadium, 81,000 in isolation. And then I related that to the prison system and how many are in isolation and in custody today. Well, let me share another issue, another image of isolation that we face while we're on this earth. Take a look at this earth picture for just a minute. If you'll go back for a second. Dramatic effect, gone, right? Here we go. Look at the world for a minute. Now, by last night's estimates, the, the ticker was still going as I was writing this and, and getting the images. But as of last night, the world's population was 7,806,764,000 people. And I'd argue a great majority of them are in isolation right there. Where you and I have the keys to unlock the cell to their door that they're trying to peek through to get a broader perspective of the world. Over 7 billion people. Very few of them by population are Christian believers. The majority are not. What do we do with that? We take the gospel. We be Jesus. We live Jesus. We share Jesus. We're not afraid to be amongst the sinner because we have boldness that comes in the name of Jesus because we're living, why? By the power of the cross. We're not living for ourselves, for our glory, all for the glory of God. Let us not be a church that isolates the sinner but insulates them with the love of Jesus. Amen.